Well, good evening again, everyone. It's good to be back here with you all. If you want to turn with me in your copy of Scripture to Deuteronomy chapter 12, we'll be looking at verse 32 this evening. Scripture is very clear as you work your way through it that the God that we serve is worthy of our worship. We spoke about these things this morning about our great God who is incomprehensible, who has life in and of himself, and we spoke about why because of that he is worthy of our worship as the supreme and divine being, the triune God of the Bible is worthy of our worship alone. And what's interesting to think about is that because we are made in the image of God, all image bearers are to render him praise, adoration, love, and service. Because we are made in his image, we are to reflect and magnify his glory. But the question that sort of remains as we contemplate and think about these things is, how is God to be worshiped, right? How is God to be worshipped? We are created as image bearers, and our purpose is to worship. That's what we were created to be and to do. But how are we to worship the God who created us? How are we to come before God in worship? Does man get a say in how God is to be worshipped? Does it even matter how we worship as long as we have good intentions, right? You'll hear things like this in our day, right? As long as my heart is right, as long as I'm coming before the Lord with a good heart, then therefore whatever I do can't be bad. Does it even matter how we worship as long as we mean well? Well, what we're going to see in Scripture very clearly, I believe this evening, is that God does indeed care about how He is to be worshiped. It's very important to God. God does indeed care how he is to be worshiped. And in fact, God has not left us to try to figure this out. (laughs) Rather, he has told us in his word how he is to be worshiped, that there is an acceptable way of worshiping God, and it's not invented by men. (laughs) It's not invented by men. It's not conjured up by men. Rather, it is instituted by God and revealed in his word. And even though creation tells us that there is a God that is worthy of our worship, it is Scripture alone that tells us how God is to be worshipped. And this is not to be added to or taken away from. That's what we'll see in our passage this evening and several other passages that we'll look at as we go through our passage this evening. So I'm going to read um, this, this text from Deuteronomy chapter 12. I'll pray for us and then we will look to God's word. This is the word of the Lord. The Lord says this, Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take away from it. This is the word of the Lord. May he write it upon our hearts. Uh, Let's pray one more time this evening. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you um, for inspiring your perfect revelation to us, for giving us holy scripture 
the book of special revelation by which we can discern and understand your will for our lives, your will for our salvation, and the only means of our redemption found in the person and work of Christ. And we pray this evening that as we consider your worship and as we consider the things of God, that you would give us great clarity, that you would give us um, discernment, and that you would enlighten our eyes this evening by the power of your Spirit to see and understand these things. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, we see in our passage this evening that God not only calls his people to obedience in general, right? He says, be careful in everything that I command you to do. So this is not only a call to obedience in general, but we see specifically that in the context of this passage, this is a call to obedience in worship. That if you look back just a couple verses, God is warning the people of Israel about the sin of idolatry, right? The sin of idolatry. This is in the context, not just of obedience in general, but obedience in worship. God is warning his people about the sin of idolatry and the temptation to follow after the idols of the surrounding nations, the gods of their own creation, right? You can just read about in the, the, the previous verses that came before these things. And we see that in verse 32, God is calling his people to worship him, not according to their own inventions, but according to what he has revealed in his word. And for anyone that might say, well, this passage is just in the Old Testament, right? This principle doesn't apply um, to the New Testament as well, we see that this, this principle of God commanding His people how He is to be worshipped is not just found in the Old Testament, but it's also found in the New as well. And this principle is what is commonly referred to as the regulative principle of worship. The regulative principle of worship, RPW for short, the regulative principle of worship, that God is to be worshiped only in the manner that he has commanded in his word. That God's word is to regulate our worship. And if you have your copy of your confession with you this evening, I'd encourage you to turn to chapter 22. I know Daryl's got it in the back of his Bible. That's so cool. Um, it's, it's such a helpful thing to, to follow along for these things as we go through. In chapter 22 of our confession um, of religious worship and the Sabbath day, the first paragraph walks through this principle. And it's really broken up into three parts, and that will in many ways be the structure of our sermon this evening. I'll read, I'll read the paragraph for us, and then we'll, we'll break down these things. Our confession says this, the light of nature shows that there is a God who has lordship and sovereignty over all, is just, good, and does good unto all, and is therefore to be feared, praised, loved, called upon, trusted in, and served with all the heart and with all the soul and with all the might. We see the second part stated here. But the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and is so limited by his own revealed will. 
Therefore, he may not be worshipped according to the imaginations and devices of men, nor the suggestions of Satan, nor under any visible representation or any other way not prescribed in Holy Scripture. This is what is often referred to as the regulative principle of worship. And as I said, this will sort of be our outline for this evening. We're going to look at three different things, really using our confession of faith as a a framework for doing this. So we're going to look first at the light of nature, the light of nature. Second, we're going to look at the acceptable way of worship. And thirdly and finally, we'll look at the imaginations of men. So first, the light of nature. As we've said before, everyone knows that there is a God. Everyone in the world, everyone that is created in the image of God, every man, woman, and child knows that there is a God. And you might be thinking to yourself, how can this be? How is this possible, right? There's people in far-off tribes. There's people that, that don't have Scripture. How can people know that there is a God without God's Word? How can this be? And the answer to this question is because God has written two books. He's not only written the book of Scripture, His special revelation, but He has written the book of creation, the book of nature by which His glory is manifested and revealed. We, we confess that this morning. That God has revealed Himself in the light of nature. That the book of nature reveals to us things about God and the worship of God. And we're going to break this down into three different subpoints under this first heading. We're going to look at natural revelation first. We're going to see that nature tells us first that there is a God. We, we read that this evening in Psalm chapter 19, verse 1, that the heavens declare the glory of God. Our confession says that the light of nature shows us that there is a God. All we need to do is look out in creation and see that there is a God. There is someone that created the world that we live in, as we spoke about this morning. We did not just come from nothing. (laughs) The God of the universe, the uncaused cause, created the world that we know. And so nature tells us that there is a God. But the second thing that we see is that nature tells us things about God. This is what we call, often refer to as natural theology. God, that nature tells us things about God. And if you wanted to, you could either look in your handout or turn with me to Romans chapter 1 in verse 19 through 20. We see these things talked about by the Apostle Paul, that creation tells us things about God. Paul says, Creation even declares God's invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature. Or as our confession states it, that God has lordship and sovereignty over all, that He is just, good, and does good to all. All it takes is five minutes reflecting on the goodness of God in creation to show us that the God who created the world is a good God. He is a just God. He is one that does good to all. He has a lordship over all. He is sovereign over all. All you have to do is look at the order and design of creation and reason back and say, the one who made this, the one who created this, is not some sort of chaos being. Rather, it is a God of order, a God of justice, and a God who is good. So we see nature tells us that there is a God. Nature tells us things about God, like His eternal power and divine nature. 
But thirdly and finally, we see that nature tells us that God is to be worshipped and praised. We could call this, I've kind of named this, natural doxology, okay? So just bear with me. That's kind of a weird phrase, but bear with me. Natural doxology, that nature tells us that God is to be worshipped and praised and loved. Because if there is a God who created us, and if He is good, therefore He deserves our worship, right? If, God, if there is a God, and if He is good, He therefore deserves our worship. Our confession says, therefore He is to be feared, loved, and praised. And we see the, the Apostle Paul speak about these things in Romans chapter 1, verse 21. He says, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since of the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, right, there's the knowledge of God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, right? This is the language of doxology, of loving God, of honoring God, of giving praise to him, even though all image bearers know there is a God and know things about God that he is good and powerful, yet they do not honor him or give thanks to him. And Paul's implication is they should. (laughs) They should have done this. They should have done this. They should have offered God love and praise and worship because he created them and because he is good. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves is, Okay, why doesn't everybody worship God? (laughs) If everyone knows there is a God, if everyone knows things about God, and creation itself tells us that God is worthy of our worship, why is everyone not a worshiper of the triune God? And the problem is, and the answer to this question is sin. (laughs) The answer to this question is because of sin. That because of our sin, as Paul will say, that we exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal creation. In our sin, instead of worshiping the God who made us, the God who gave us everything, life and breath and all that we have, in our sin, we worship everything but God. We, are, we worship created things as a means to our satisfaction and joy rather than the one who has given us all things. And not only do we worship what we should not, rather we worship creation instead of God, in our sin, even when we seek to worship God, we worship Him in a way that He is not prescribed. We worship Him in a way that is unacceptable if we are left to our own devices. In our sin, we do not worship God rightly. Our worship is not acceptable to him, And so that leads us to our second point this evening, the acceptable way of worship. The acceptable way of worship. That even though nature tells us that we are to worship God, we see that it is Scripture alone that tells us how we are to worship God. Nature can tell us that we're supposed to. It can declare to all people that they are to worship God. This is why they are without excuse on the day of judgment. But ultimately, it is Scripture alone that tells us how God is to be worshipped. And this is what our confession says in chapter 22, paragraph 1, where it says, but the acceptable way of worshipping the true God is instituted by Himself. 
and is limited to his own revealed will. Speaking about the Word of God, divine revelation, what we refer to as Holy Scripture. So we're going to look at three sub-points under this heading. The first one is we're going to look at worship that is true. Worship that is true. That true worship must first and foremost be of the true God. In order for worship to be true worship, it has to have the right object. You could have the most true, you could have the most heartfelt and good-intentioned worship, but if it's aimed at the wrong God or the idols of the nations, then it is not true worship. So true worship must be of the true God. And the truth is there are many false gods, there are many idols that we can worship in our sin. We can create idols in our own heart, but Scripture tells us that tells us that there is only one true and living God that is worthy of our worship. This is very clear from the first and the second commandments that we are to worship God, not according to our own devices. We're not to create idols in our own image, but we are to worship God, the true God, in the way that he has prescribed. We're not to create idols and... um, we're to worship the true God. We must worship the God of Scripture. So this is worship that is true. But secondly, we, we need to see worship that is acceptable. Worship that is acceptable, that God tells us how he is to be worshiped. He tells us how he is to be worshiped. And we read this in our passage this evening when the Lord says, everything I command, you shall be careful to do. Everything I command, you shall be careful to do. That God tells us how He is to be worshipped, not the other way around, right? That God tells us how He is to be worshipped, not the other way around. And sadly, this has been sort of flipped in our day. In our culture, we've sort of flipped the script on this thing. Everything has been kind of lopsided and flipped upside down. In modern church culture, we end up putting man at the center of worship. We end up putting man at the center of worship. It all becomes about us. What do we want out of worship? What do we get out of worship? What do we think is best instead of what God has commanded his people to do? And so we see that worship is to be true, that worship is to be acceptable unto God. And thirdly and finally, we see worship that is limited. Worship that is limited. And what I mean by that is worship is limited to God's revealed will. Worship is limited to God's revealed will. Or we could say it like this. I think this is helpful. God's word regulates God's worship. God's word regulates God's worship. And because of what we believe about the sufficiency of Scripture... And what our confession states about the sufficiency of Scripture, we can be confident that what God has given us in His Word is sufficient for the worship of God, right? That God's Word regulates and is sufficient for our understanding of God's worship. This is what we mean when we speak about the regulative principle of worship. The practice that we are to worship God only and exclusively in the manner that He has commanded us in His Word. Now, in the Old Testament... 
This was the Old Covenant ceremonial laws. These were the laws that governed the Old Covenant people of Israel and the worship of Yahweh, right? Remember the sacrifices and the cleanliness laws, the the rites of purification and the various feasts. This is the way that the people were to come before the Lord in worship. But now in the New Covenant and in the New Testament, worship is limited to what God has commanded in the New Testament, in Christ and in His church. That because Christ has fulfilled all the types and shadows of the Old Testament, Christ has fulfilled the sacrifices, He's fulfilled the cleanliness laws and the feasts and the purifications we can now come before God and worship, not on the basis of the old covenant, but on basis of the new Christ's blood and his body broken for us. And so we see that the way we are to worship God now in the new covenant is revealed in the New Testament. And this is really helpful. It's really, um, it's really enumerated on in our confession of faith. If you go through the remaining chapters in chapter 22, specifically chapters, um, paragraphs three through six, it talks about all the elements of our worship that are commanded and instituted in the New Testament, that we are to pray according to God's word. We are to sing according to God's word. We are to read God's word publicly. We are to preach God's word, listening to God's word, and seeing God's word in the Lord's Supper and in baptism that this is God's revealed will for new covenant worship. And this means that everything else, everything outside of what God has commanded, is inventions of men. It is what many older people refer to as will worship. It is inventions of men. It is unacceptable to God. John Calvin, in his work, The Necessity of Reforming the Church, says this, God disapproves of all modes of worship not expressly sanctioned by His words. His word, sorry. That God disapproves of all modes of worship not expressly sanctioned by His words. We could say it like this. God is not indifferent about worship. (laughs) He's not indifferent about worship. This is clear in both Old Testament and New Testament that God cares about how He is to be worshipped that there is indeed an acceptable way of worshiping the triune God. And if there is an acceptable way of worshiping God, that means that there is also an unacceptable way of worshiping God. And that leads us to our third and final point this evening, the imaginations of men. The imaginations of men. That if nature tells us that we are to worship God, and if Scripture tells us how we are to worship God, then to ignore God's Word and worship according to our own imaginations is indeed a great and grievous sin and displeases our Creator. This is what we read in the latter part of our verse this evening. God says, You shall not add to it or take from it. You shall not add to it or take from it. That God is to be worshipped in the way He has prescribed, and anything outside of that is the imaginations of men. We read this in the final part of, um, of chapter 22 of our Confession of Faith, where it says that 
that he is not to be worshipped according to the imaginations and devices of men, nor according to the suggestions of Satan under any visible representation or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. So once again, we'll look at three subpoints to this heading. The first one is this, that God is not to be worshipped according to the imaginations and devices of men. God is not to be worshipped according to the imagination and devices of men, somehow accommodating God's commands to our human preferences, right? Saying, well, I want to do this, or I want to do that, or I think God would be pleased with this, or I think this is a form of worship. And you see how this has pervaded our culture, whether it's Christian entertainment, Christian television, um, or even the way the church has been ordered and um, worship in the modern church has been prescribed, right? Pragmatism has worked its way into the modern church where people can say, well, if it works or if it helps me, then therefore it's a good thing. How could it possibly be something that is bad? But this is an imagination, a device of men. We're so focused on entertainment, on entertaining people in worship, keeping them um, emotionally high or manipulated so that they feel a certain thing. These are all devices of men, and these are not things that God has prescribed. But the second thing that we see is that God is not to be worshipped according to the suggestions of Satan or under any visible representation that this is very clear from the second commandment, that God is to not be pictured, right? We're not to draw images of God or seek to represent Him by icons or any visible representation, right? This, um, this forbids uh, what many in the you know, Eastern Orthodox or the Roman Catholic Church would do as venerating icons or, or even kissing these images of Christ or of the saints. This excludes all forms of icons or images or ways of representing God and using them as a means of worshiping God. You can even think about modern TV shows that try to represent Christ or add to Scripture and add stories about the life of Jesus in order to to get people to read their Bibles or whatever it is. All these things are seeking to have visible representations of God and are um, devices of men. And I love what uh, the Orthodox Catechism says in question number 110. When it's talking about these things, it asks the question, can we use images of God to help people understand Him, right? Can we, can we use images of God to help people in their weakness? And it says, I love the answer, it says, are we wiser than God? <laughs> he would rather have us be led and worshiped by the lively preaching of his word. That when we invent new ways of worshiping God, what we're really doing is in a sense saying we're smarter than God, right? His word is not enough. What he's given us is not enough. We need to invent new ways. We need to make the Bible more interesting or more more intriguing to people. These are all ways that we are seeking to be wiser than God and wiser than his revealed will. So we see we're not, God is not to be worshipped according to the devices and imaginations of men, nor the suggestions of Satan or under any visible representation. And if that didn't catch everything, <laughs> the third point is that God is not to be worshipped according to any way not prescribed in Holy Scripture. Not any way prescribed 
in Holy Scripture. We could summarize it very simply, actually. <laughs> we, could, we shouldn't overcomplicate these things. I think the book of Deuteronomy does a great job. Do not add, do not take away. <laughs> do not add, do not take away. That this is how God is to be worshipped. And we saw, we read in our Old Testament reading this evening, the, the deadly consequences and the, the consequences of not coming before God in the right and proper way. We saw Nadab and Abihu were, were killed for offering worship to God that he did not command. This strange, unauthorized fire that they brought before the Lord. They thought they were wiser than God. They thought God was indifferent about worship. They thought he didn't care about how he was to be worshipped. And they learned the hard way. And so, so may we take heed as we look to God's word and as we seek to understand what is his will for his worship. How can we look to scripture to give us the blueprint, the outline of how God is to be worshipped and how can we discern God's will for his worship? And as we, as we step back from this passage this evening and as we think about what this means for our lives, I think this can be hard for us in a lot of ways to hear these things. And especially in our culture, it can be hard for us to hear these kind of, these, these teachings about the worship of God. Because I think if we're honest, this can all sound very restrictive to us, right? You mean God is limiting the worship of himself. I can't do whatever my heart feels like. It can all feel very restrictive to us, especially in our modern culture. But I think this just shows us how backwards and upside down our thinking is because we placed ourselves at the center of worship and not God. And so the first thing we need to see is we need to, we need to flip this picture over. We need to see rightly and properly the centrality of God in, the, in our worship. And the first thing we're going to look at is the doctrine of Christian liberty. The doctrine of Christian liberty and its connection to this idea of acceptable worship. That when we understand who God is rightly and understand his word as sufficient for his worship, when we see this regulative principle of worship, the acceptable way that God has commanded, when we see all these things rightly and properly, we can see that they are not bondage, they're not restrictions to the Christian, but rather their freedom, their true liberty to worship God in the way he has commanded. That as believers... We have been freed to worship the triune God in the way he has commanded. We've been freed. I don't think we think about it like that often enough. Because not only have we been freed from the guilt and punishment of our sin, the just wrath of God that we deserved for our sin, but we have been freed to worship him according to his word, and we've actually been freed from the doctrines and commandments of men. Where before, we only followed our sin, we only followed what we wanted. Now, in Christ, we have been freed to worship God in the way He has commanded us. And lest we think our day is somehow unique in terms of adding things to the worship of God, during the time of the Reformation, things were no different. <laughs> why, did, why did Calvin have to write a book on the necessity of reforming the church? Because these same things were happening. These same issues that we have were in place during the time of the Reformation. In the Roman Catholic Church, people were adding to the worship of God. They were adding 
icons. They were adding these indulgences. They were adding things, commanding people to worship in this way. And I love what Jim Ranahad said in his commentary. He said, the reformers viewed human additions to worship as impositions upon Christian freedom. The reformers viewed human additions to worship as impositions upon Christian freedom. That what, what Jim is trying to say there is that when we add things to the worship of God, what we're really telling people is you have to worship God in this way. Whether it's a mime or a dance or a skit or painting. <laughs> These are all things that, that I've seen as, as, as modes or ways of worshiping God in modern worship services. And we, in our, in our man-focused view, we see these things as God just wants me to worship Him however He wants, however we want. But when we, when we flip that, we see that what we're saying is we're forcing people to worship God in this way, through dance, through skit, in some way that God has not commanded him, Himself to be worshipped. We're telling people, you must worship God in this way. And this is a restriction on our Christian liberty and our freedom in Christ, that we have been freed to do what God has commanded, not adding to or taking away from. But the second thing that we should see as we think about the importance of the worship of God is the importance of corporate worship and the Lord's Day. The importance of corporate worship and the Lord's Day. That when we come together to worship God with His people each and every Sunday, Lord's Day after Lord's Day, this is where we gather to worship in the way that God has prescribed, right? We read Scripture. We pray together. We sing God's Word. We hear the Word preached. We see the Lord visibly represented in the, the, the Lord's Supper and in baptism. This is where we gather to worship God in the way He has prescribed. It's not just the music, right? I think modern people think that worship is just the music, right? You have the worship at the beginning, you do four songs, and then there's something else is happening during the sermon. I don't know what people think is going on, right? But the whole thing is worship. From the call to worship to the benediction, God is being worshiped. And corporate worship is one of the most important things we will do as believers. It's the, the closest picture we have of, of heaven, this side of heaven. And this is made very clear for us in, in Hebrews chapter 12, we see that, in fact, what the writer to the Hebrews tells us is that when we gather together for corporate worship, we're not coming to some physical place, to some physical mountain that can be touched, some earthly temple, but rather, he says, we have come to the heavenly Jerusalem. We have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, that our worship, when we gather together with God's people on the Lord's day, is actually heavenly worship. It is actually accepted in the heavenly places, that this is the invisible glory of new covenant worship, that when we gather together, what we're doing is, is not earthly. It's not physical in nature only. Rather, it is spiritual in its, in its nature and in its, in its end. And so we can now come before a holy God because of what Christ has done. We've been made acceptable to God because of the work of Christ. That 
by the shedding of His blood and by the cleansing of His Spirit, we can come before a God who is holy and righteous and just, where before the people had to stand back on the mountain for fear of, for fear of death if they even touched the mountain. Now we can come before God um, because He has purified us by the blood of Christ. And I love how this chapter ends speaking about the application of this. He says, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And he says, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. He says, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and with awe. Why, why are we to do this? Why are we to offer God acceptable worship? Because our God is a consuming fire. Our God is worthy of our worship. We serve a God who alone is worthy of our worship. And an unbeliever should see this as they come in to our church, right? They should see really three things. As they come in, as unbelievers uh, um, come into the worship of God in the local church, they they should see first and foremost that God is holy, that the God that we approach in worship is holy, that he is just, that he is good, that he is worthy of our worship. And the second thing that they should see is that we're not. (laughs) We are not holy. We are not worthy to come before the Lord. That's why we confess our sin each and every week. We we come before him admitting our, our weakness and our frailty. But the third thing that they should see, not only that God is holy and that we are unholy, But the third thing that they should see is that God is also gracious, that he has made a way in the person and work of Christ for those that were dead in their trespasses and sins to come before a holy God, to worship him in spirit and in truth, and to approach the throne of grace with boldness, knowing that Christ has made a way for his people. And so, Let's worship God truly. Let's worship Him according to the way He has prescribed. Let's not add to it. Let's not take away from it, knowing that this is not only the way that most glorifies God, but is actually the way that most sanctifies us and grows us in knowledge of our Savior. So let's, let's think on these things as we close tonight. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for... Um, this day that we get to worship you. And in our weakness, in our humanity, in our frailty, we we're so prone to to downplay these things, to see them as less significant than they are. We're tempted to to think in our very earthly understanding of these things. Help us, Lord, to see the heavenliness of our worship that because of Christ, we can come before you who is high and lifted up, and because of Christ's sacrifice for our sins, we have a way made for us into your very presence, that you promise to meet with us as we gather together. You promise to change us and sanctify us, Lord. And as, as we continue um, and seek as a local church to, to worship you in the way you've prescribed, in the way you've instituted, in a way that's acceptable to you. Help us to do that, Lord, with reverence, with awe, trembling as we come before you, the God who made us, the God who sustains us, the God who has saved us by his grace. But help us also to come with joy and gladness, 
knowing that apart from you, we have nothing. And apart from the work of Christ, we have no hope of salvation. So help us to see these things clearly. Help us to to worship you in the way you've prescribed and, and give us strength as we contemplate your holiness and come before you, the one who made us. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.